This Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by the AISC Design Guide Series. Design Guide 29, Vertical Bracing Connections Analysis and Design, is available now. Visit AISC.org slash design guides to see what's new and download a free copy today. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Engineering and Research Department at AISC. My guest today is Lawrence G. Griffiths, P.E., Senior Principal and Senior Consultant at Walter P. Moore & Associates. Mr. Griffiths earned his bachelor's and master's degrees in civil engineering from the University of Texas at Austin. In his 40-plus year career, Larry has developed particular expertise in the design of high-rise buildings, long-span roof structures, and composite steel systems. He is also considered one of the top specialists in wind engineering in the U.S. and is an author and contributor to the development of the ASCE 7 wind standard. Mr. Griffiths has also been a pioneer in the design of retractable roof stadiums and ballparks in the U.S. Larry serves on numerous technical committees throughout the industry, including serving on the AISC Specification Committee. Mr. Griffiths was the recipient of the 1994 AISC T.R. Higgins Lectureship Award and in 2002 was awarded AISC's Lifetime Achievement Award. Larry was elected to the National Academy of Engineering in 2003 and in 2009 he was awarded the prestigious AISC J. Lloyd Kimbrough Award which honors engineers who are universally recognized as the preeminent steel designers of their era. Welcome, Larry. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to me today. Happy to be here. Okay, so we're just going to jump right in. What motivated you to go into engineering? Well, let's see. I, I guess uh, my father was a mechanical engineer with a structural option as well, so I guess I first got interested in engineering uh, through my family. And then uh, my oldest brother was a metallurgical engineer, and then my second brother down we're a family of six, by the way, so I'm sort of in the middle. My second brother was an electrical engineer, uh, went to the University of Texas. So I guess it was natural for me to, to go into engineering just because of the family uh, tradition. So you earned your bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Texas at Austin. While you were a student there, did you ever dream that your career would be as illustrious as it has been? Well, no, you never know how things are going to be, <laughs> actually, when you, when you start out. I guess my father uh, started as Dean of Engineering at Rice University, which is how I got from Chicago, Illinois, where I was born, to Texas. Actually, I would have gone to uh, Rice University and probably gotten free tuition had he stayed Dean of Engineering. Well, uh, and right, right as I was getting ready to go off to college, he moved up to SMU and became uh, Vice Provost, and so then Rice was no longer a, a free option. So. <laughs> I opted for the University of Texas at Austin and certainly one of the best decisions I, I ever made. It was a fantastic program and fantastic faculty there at UT. So as you said, your father was a professor. Is that why you are so focused on continuous learning and advancing your knowledge base? Well, actually, I started out going into the consulting business and like, like anybody that starts there, your days are filled with you know working on projects and learning the ropes in the early years. And actually, uh, I really didn't think too much about conferences and, and extracurricular activities until uh, I guess my first mentor, which was Walter Moore Jr., the namesake of our company, Walter P. Moore. He was very active professionally, and uh, he pushed me to start joining organizations and giving talks and papers. And I think I came kicking and screaming on that. Did uh, you? <laughs> 
Yeah, it wasn't uh, natural to me, but I'm glad he pushed me because mm -hmm. uh, we are too. It was really fascinating to, and I think uh, the first conference I ever went to was an AISC uh, conference. Do you remember which one? I think it was about 1975 or 76, and I, I know Bob Desquay was was running things back then. And mm -hmm. boy, when I heard the passion that he put into to the programs there, I mean, he was so focused on that conference and getting good speakers and of course he was also focused on the specification mm -hmm. development and so I mean he was a real inspiration and certainly one of my uh, great acquaintances and I have uh, utmost respect for, for Bob Desquay. So he was the first guy at AISC that I really got to know. Uh, so you've worked on some very famous projects like Reliant Stadium in Houston and the Cardinal Stadium in Phoenix. Do you approach these types of monumental projects any differently than you do any other project? Fortunately in my career I've had the opportunity to work on a lot of uh, big projects. Being a national firm like we are at Walter P. Moore, it's opened the doors for a lot of grand projects. And Actually I started my career doing tall buildings and I, my first love and first interest was really designing uh, high-rise buildings and I happened to be in Houston at the time when Houston was expanding just incredibly. And so uh, there were many buildings for us to design there in Houston. And so I, I got into tall buildings, and, uh, and that's how I got interested actually in composite construction because a lot of the buildings we were doing down in Houston were using composite frame construction, which was kind of new at the time. We happened to be working with a general contractor, who W.S. Bellows, who built most of the high-rise buildings in downtown Houston, and they loved the idea of composite construction where you... You build the steel frame up ahead and then you come behind and, mm -hmm. and do reinforced concrete. They thought it was a very efficient uh, construction method and uh, use of materials. And so that got me into composite construction, which got me interested in that. And I wrote a few papers on that and then was fortunate enough to uh, be nominated and won the Higgins Award, which was certainly one of the big highlights of my of my career and a total shock to me at the time, but uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about that later. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was a great one, and uh, certainly appreciative of that. But anyway, so uh, tall buildings was my first love, and then we got into they quit building tall buildings, and you know, in the '80s uh, when the market went down, and mm -hmm. then sports came along, and so our firm just happened to be at the right place at the right time with doing a lot of long span roofs like uh, you have in arenas and and stadiums, and so. Houston was looking for a new ballpark and a new football stadium, and so being from Houston, that opportunity sort of just landed in my lap. But my first introduction into movable stadiums actually came from Shuff Steele, who was the fabricator and erector on the Bank One Stadium in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And so it happened I got hired by them as an expert witness when they got involved in some legal problems on, the, on that. And so I learned, uh, I mean, I, I had to go through every RFI and every piece of paper that was ever written on that stadium. And it was a very, being the first retractable roof stadium, it was, it was, it was sort of the guinea pig. Uh -huh. And it had lots of problems, a lot of erection problems. So I learned about... You learned what not to do. I learned the good, the bad, and the ugly <laughs> about uh, retractable roof stadiums by... <laughs> spending, I think, almost nine months on that assignment, and it was fascinating because right after I picked that up, you know, Houston was in the market for mm -hmm. building a retractable roof baseball stadium, and so I, I felt like I had already had a short course, you know, to prepare, mm -hmm. so the, the timing was actually very fortuitous. And then after Minute Maid Park, which um, actually started out as Enron Field, 
and moved into Reliant Stadium, which was the football stadium and replacement for the Astrodome. And so those kind of projects are really mega projects, and your question about how do I approach them, uh, if you know anything about engineering on large projects, you know that it's a, it's a team sport. It's mm-hmm. a, it takes 30,000, 40,000 man hours to deliver those kind of projects. And so you're part of a big team, and when you're the leader of the team, you've got to be sure that the team is heading in the right direction, and you've got to be the sort of the orchestra leader to be sure all the, the parts are doing what they're supposed to be doing. So for me on those projects, it was a lot about managing the team. And then of course, since retractable roofs and moving roofs were sort of a new phenomenon, there was a lot of technical challenges mm-hmm. <laughs> as well that we had to deal with. And of course, when you're involved in something that moves, it's, it's not like designing one building. It's, it's every position the building can be in. It's a new building in effect. So yeah. lots of challenges involved in, in those. And fortunately, we were on, on teams that had very capable uh, mechanization designers and we forged some great relationships there as we built up our portfolio on retractable roof stadiums. So the key is management and an understanding that, you know, you're just part of a team and the team is what counts and you gotta be sure the team is doing what they're supposed to be doing. So you just said that you work on a lot of these retractable roof systems, a pioneer really in, in that. Have you ever looked at a project and thought there's just no way this can be done? <laughs> Well, as, as movable roofs got to be a little bit more sophisticated, they started out like Bank One did, where it was just sort of horizontal motion. Although Bank One, uh, I think, uh, tried something overly ambitious in the fact that the different segments, each one was supported on the one next to it. And that caused all kinds of problems because obviously when you build the first segment and then the second segment sits on it, everything deflects and moves and you know the whole thing is in a different point in space. And so controlling the, the elevations and the positions in space was the problem on, on bank one. And so quickly learned in doing these kind of projects that it's all about tolerances mm-hmm. and it's all about understanding where the structure is going to be as it's being built. Yeah. Because if you got to get a big crane out there and a, you know the erector's busy and trying to make a schedule and things aren't fitting together, well then you know the ball game's <laughs> the ball game's over. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of problems. So you got to think about tolerances and you got to think about you know how the erector's going to build it. Lots of challenges. So, but you've never had somebody approach you with a project and said you can't build that. <laughs> well, when we uh, the first ones we did were just sort of horizontal motion and then you know these architects they say well you know we don't want to build one like the last one so now we want this one to go up a big hill you know a big <laughs> steep incline and so started looking at some of them that were not just like crane technology where you know the crane goes back and forth horizontally on a level surface they wanted to start going up you know steep slopes to get a sort of a rounded roof profile and that created some challenges about, okay, how are we going to pull, you know, 5,000 tons of, of roof up a hill? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that creates a lot of challenges. You realize that crane technology with just electric-powered wheels wasn't going to work. And so then you start exploring, well, what are the other ways that you can move a roof? And so then we got into uh, cable technology where you pull the, the roofs up a hill. Mm-hmm. And then quickly these roofs got more and more complicated and more and more challenging and fortunately we, we figured them out as, as we went and none of the ones we ever designed had, had much problem but uh, they're getting more and more sophisticated and so I would expect as architects dream up more ways to move them that uh, the challenge is going to get bigger but, but no I've never been able to say no I can't do this. Always figure it out. So you always figure the technology out. Yeah, you yeah. you, you, you got to go to the right people that that can help you. 
I mean, you never figure it out by yourself, of course, but if you know who the people are that can help you and you have that cooperative team kind of approach to the project, it's pretty amazing the things you can accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously, from, from looking at all your list of projects, what's your favorite type of design problem? Well, as I mentioned, I, I kind of got grew up on, on tall buildings and always had a love of doing those and uh, utilizing tall building systems. But then when we got into long span roofs, I developed an interest and got a lot of experience with uh, long span roof projects. And I, I guess those have sort of dominated my career, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of mega projects. But of course, there's a lot of routine stuff you do too with hospitals and schools and small office buildings. And, you know, it's not all <laughs> a glamorous project. <laughs> You have to do all kinds of projects when you're a national consulting firm like sure. Walter P. Moore is. So, but I love the long span roofs and I love the, the tall buildings. That's where I've gained my my skill. So, out of all of these illustrious projects, which project are you most proud of? Or is that like picking a favorite child? Yeah, that's that's pretty <laughs> tough. I mean, each one of the grand ones has a different set of challenges. You know, figuring out how to do composite frame construction and do it economically was a challenge and figured that one out. We got pretty good at designing tall buildings and, and then when we weren't designing those anymore and these stadiums came along, I had to learn about long span roof construction. So I, I mean, clearly retractable roofs was a tough nut because I didn't have a clue uh, <laughs> until I got involved in uh, that bank one. I really didn't have, have a clue how to approach those things. And by doing that bank one stint there with Shuff, I really learned a lot from mm-hmm. mistakes that had been made and I used that to keep from making those same mistakes on the ones that that I did. But I think one of the more glamorous ones and one of the more satisfying ones was the uh, Cardinal Stadium in in Phoenix, home of the Arizona Cardinals. And that one was very interesting because uh, I had the opportunity to work with Shuff Steel. It was actually a design-build project where we we were actually the engineer working for the fabricator, which was a great experience. And what made that one exciting is Dave Shuff, who's the founder and patriarch of the Shuff Steel, very hands-on kind of a guy roll up your shirt sleeves, let's figure it out kind of a guy. And he was just uh, very exciting to work with. And his vision on that project was to actually erect the 800-foot-long trusses on the ground in a vertical position. So it was two 800-foot trusses spanning to to the four corners of the stadium and lots of infill steel, including movable roof steel. Mm -hmm. His vision was to build all that on the ground and then lift it up in one grand lift. And so... The challenging thing on that project is, you know, how do you build something that's 800 feet long on the ground in a vertical position and then do all the erection engineering that it takes to lift it up from the four corners? An enormous amount of planning and engineering went into that lift, which, you know, made the cover of engineering news record and it was... Gosh, there must have been a million reporters out there watching, you know, <laughs> to see if anything was going to happen. Must have all come out all right. <laughs> and... Uh, it was amazing when when we got to the day to, to actually do the lift and we actually went through some rehearsals. Uh, you know, you think of Phoenix as being you know, 110 degrees and just hotter and blazes, and it turned out to be a cold, wintry kind of day, and it was really? raining, and it was, the weather was just unbelievably bad. And so the whole the whole thing, you know, we expected it to be in the heat of a hot summer day. It ended up being in sort of in a cold, uh, miserable environment. But we pulled it off, and that was certainly satisfying to work with. 
you know, a really first-class erector and a glamorous lift. I mean, I think we lifted, I think it was like 6,000 tons of steel up in one, wow. one, lift, one from, lift from four corners using a stranjack kind of an approach. So that was very satisfying. And, of course, when it finally got up there and it was bolted down into place, big sigh of relief. And, no, I bet. And, uh, <laughs> Lots of celebrating. So that was a that was a that was a great one, and I, I learned that collaborating with an erector, fabricated erector team is very important to pulling off these long span structures. And the, many engineers approach these kind of buildings where you just say, well, you know, the erector that's, that's means and methods, and he's got to figure it out for himself. And we never did take that approach. We always felt like the riskiest time for these buildings was when they're being erected and mm-hmm. particularly when they're being lifted and so we've always taken the approach of actually figuring out the erection engineering as part of the contract documents and so on all of our long span roofs we develop a way that's an engineered method of actually building the structure and i think that kind of an approach to it has kept us out of trouble for <laughs> a lot of other people have suffered from the erection process yeah you think on these kind of projects that it's just necessary yeah, and it's 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 amazing. I think most of the, the name engineers that are doing it now realize that you have to be engaged in the erection process. But for many years, it was sort of like, oh no, no, that's means and methods, and engineers don't get involved in means and methods. But one of the people that I studied in my lifetime was was Gustave Eiffel, who was the big French engineer, of course, that designed the Eiffel Tower. And mm-hmm. I read a lot about that structure, and actually I learned about him from the man that led the W.S. Bellows organization, which was that big contractor in Houston that developed the composite construction technique. And his father actually des- designed and built the San Jacinto Monument outside Houston, which was a you know, very tall spire using composite construction. But I learned about the importance of working as part of a fabrication erection team by working on projects like that where you can't just let the erector and the fabricator do whatever they, they want to do. It's got to be a team team effort. Well, let's talk about Gustav Eiffel. I've got some questions about him. Yeah. You wrote a fascinating article for Modern Steel Construction in 2006 entitled A Culture of Discipline. So explain what that means when you apply that to the engineering community. Well, one of the things I learned early on in working on these projects is that, first of all, you got to have a, a good team working with you, of course, but there's a lot of discipline involved in, in structural engineering. And first of all, you got to be willing to work the, the long hours and, and go the extra mile that it's going to take, particularly when you're doing something new that hasn't been done before. And so... Having done a lot of these projects, I've seen a lot of the mistakes that others have made along the way, and uh, I made my share <laughs> for sure, too. But every time I make a mistake, I try to learn from it. That article was sort of putting together some actually fairly logical uh, guidelines for young engineers on how you approach a project. You know, there's a lot of lamenting going on right now about, you know, are computers good or are they bad and all this structural engineering software that we all rely on. You know, I grew up in the uh, slide rule era, mm-hmm. you know, and where everything was hand. You know, you were doing approximate portal techniques for designing high-rise buildings. And, and then, of course, as calculators came on the scene and then later desktop computers, the software just became so, so powerful, and it allowed us to do so many more things. It was a really exciting time to be in structural engineering as all this uh, computer technology was evolving. A lot of people lament the fact that young engineers tend to rely on it too much and, you know, it's sort of the old saying, garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I try to teach the young engineers is you you have to develop a feel for the structure and do some preliminary design and approximate techniques before you launch into a big software study. I think that's so important, and, and it's very upsetting to me to see young engineers that 
you know, the, the first step is, okay, let's build a model and then, you know, we'll put the loads on there and then we'll, we'll get the answer and then we'll go put it all on the drawings with, without taking some steps in between to see, you know, what are the mode shapes and the frequencies, what do they look like, what does the deflected shape look like under dead load, and does it make sense? And if you do some of these little tricks to, to figure out how the structure should behave based on your knowledge and logic, then you can begin to find the mistakes that are inevitably going to come out of the Peter software yeah. process. And so that article, again, was, was one where I just put together a lot of ideas, mostly for young engineers, about you're going to be involved in structural engineering, designing grand projects. You better have some discipline about you. And so you know, I wrote down a lot of things that, that I had learned. Great article to write, actually. It was. It was fascinating. So in this article, you write about Gustav Eiffel and that he was able to design and build the tallest structure in the world at the time in just 22 months and under budget and came up with multiple genius innovations. So what was special about Eiffel that he was able to accomplish these things? Eiffel was an incredible man. I think he was really almost 100 years ahead of his time. He was obviously a very competent bridge engineer, which was how he was trained. He not only had to design something that was taller than anything that had ever been built, but then he had to figure out how to build it. And uh, I found it fascinating that he, he bid the project. <laughs> it was a competitive bid competition that he was part of. And he came up with an idea that, that, that uh, the judges uh, obviously liked. You know, not only did he design it himself, he had to build it. And then he took full financial responsibility for it. So That's unbelievable. I mean, how many projects today does the structural engineer, you know, is he financially responsible for the, for, you know, for the outcome? And Boy, that would change does, things, does wouldn't he, it? Does he know how to erect it and does he know how to design it? So, I mean, to think that that man pulled that off and actually made a profit yeah. and built it time for this uh, French exposition, to me, it was fascinating. And, and one of uh, Eiffel's big challenges in building something that was tall as that it was what are the wind loads that you design it for? And nobody had a clue, you know, what the wind loads and the wind pressure should be for a, you know, this iron monster that was going to go up. And so he did a lot of wind engineering research on his own and made some estimates and calculations. And after he built the tower, which obviously was very successful, he launched into a lot of experiments on the tower itself in doing wind pressure measurements. If you really read about him, you figure out he's really the sort of the father of wind engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, he used his tower as a tool to learn more about wind forces and wind pressures and wind speeds. And so the fact that he, you know, was a designer, a director, a financial... <laughs> person that took all the responsibility and, you know, used his masterpiece as uh, learning about wind engineering is, I mean, how many people can we say did something like that? Not very <laughs> pretty, many. Pr pretty amazing. So, you know, when I read about him from this book that Mr. Bellows gave me, I quickly said, wow, what a guy. Yeah, and you just said that he's the father of practical wind engineering of structures. You are also considered a wind engineering specialist and are very involved with the ASCE-7 wind provisions. So do you think the provisions have gotten too complicated, or do you think that they're not rigorous enough? Well, that's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I got interested in wind engineering because when we were doing tall buildings, I had to, I had to figure out, okay, how do you design tall buildings for, for wind loads? And, mm -hmm. and so I, I sort of became a spectator on the early wind committee at ASCE, which was chaired at the time by Dr. Kishore Mehta. Texas Tech, and I get fascinated by going to the meetings and, and seeing how they were developing 
back then it was the 1982 ANSI standard. That's before it became ASCE 7. I learned a lot from Dr. Mehta, who's to this day a really great wind engineer. If you really see what's going on at ASCE 7, I, I think it's symptomatic of a, another struggle that we're having in the profession as to how do we treat codes and standards. You're, of course, aware that the wind standard gets a lot of criticism from its, its uh, complexity and our committee has spent a lot of time discussing that and trying to figure out ways to deal with it in the, the 2010 version where we broke it up into various chapters and I think we made a big step in making it much more user friendly. But the problem we have there, and I think a lot of the criticism that the standard gets is because there's multiple methods to get wind loads that don't get the same answer. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of historical background into why those methods are there and you can't just pull one out because that's going to make you know, a lot of the stakeholders on that method unhappy. So uh -huh. we've ended up having to deal with multiple methods. And, uh, you know, there's uh, the separation between low-rise buildings and high-rise buildings at 60 feet. And when you take the low-rise method and apply it to a building that's 60 feet tall, and then you take the all-heights method and bring it down to 60 feet, they don't mesh very well at the at the 60-foot level. And that's because there's totally different approaches. And so one of the things we need in that committee desperately is we need funding to go back to the wind tunnel, which to me is one of the most incredible and most powerful tools for a structural engineer uh, used widely, as I'm sure you know, for long, not only long span projects, but also tall buildings. And the wind tunnel has all the answers for us, but nobody is spending a nickel <laughs> taking the problems of the archaic information that's really in the wind standard right, right now. And a lot of those pressure coefficients, for instance, were developed 40 years ago. Really? Yeah, so there's very little new wind tunnel research that's gone into revisiting the wind standard. And the seismic folks have enjoyed, you know, lots of funding from NEHRP and, and the federal government, FEMA. And the wind engineering community, unfortunately, does, has had very little funding. And so we're not using the wind tunnel tool like we could be to make the wind provisions more modernized. And we all want one method to design for wind engineering, not three or four methods like we have now. And to get there means we get some research funding, go to the wind tunnel and repeat a lot of these tests that are now 40 years old based on old technology and redevelop the pressure coefficients and, and come to one method with modernized pressure coefficients that come from the wind tunnel. And then I think we could develop a standard that would be a little bit more palatable than what, than what we have today. So now when does the next one come out? We're now balloting the 2016 16. version, and there's some, the some big, big, big changes, changes coming. Yeah, it's one of, one of my pet peeves, actually, is the, the so many changes. It gets back to the problem I think we have in the profession about how we treat codes. And unfortunately, with all the knowledge that, that is being done in, in research and structural engineering, that everything that comes out, there's this tendency for people to want to, okay, now that we have this information, we need to get it in the code. <laughs> And we've lost sight of what a building code really needs to be. As you know, the code is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more complicated. And if you look at the 1982 ANSI standard, you know, it was like 25 pages Yeah, it was like something. a pamphlet. <laughs> and now, you know, it's a book. Yeah. And it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's all great information. I just would argue that it doesn't all need to be in that standard. Right. We've lost sight of what a standard really is. We have to understand that there's resource documents that can support a standard, and a lot of the information we're developing belongs in the resource documents, mm -hmm. not in the standard. And right. You've heard the term, of course, performance-based design, which is one of the big buzzwords that's, that's in the industry now. And mm -hmm. 
the focus on performance-based design is to make things simple and leave the thinking to the structural engineer to develop a design approach that meets the performance guidelines. And I think that's very well-intentioned, but I think we're kind of talking out of two sides of our mouth here because everybody that wants performance-based design are also the same people that are saying, well, you know, we we got to get this into the code. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't and, be able to so have it both ways. We're really struggling with what is the next generation of codes and standards? What are they going to be like? Because we can't keep on going the way we, we are now where everything is growing exponentially. If you look at the ASC 7 standard, even the AISC specification, if you look at ACI, they're all growing exponentially. I don't think that's serving the structural engineering community very well. We've got to figure out a different way to get the knowledge into the toolkit of the structural engineer without having to put it all into a building code. Well, and this leads me to my next question, that you serve on the AISC specification committee and you're also on committees for ACI and ASCE. Why do you think committee work is important other than to keep them small? <laughs> well, you know, a lot of engineers complain about the standards and the codes, and, but yet they, they sit on the sidelines and fire volleys at the, those of us that serve. And code procedure in the United States is all voluntary effort. I mean, it's not paid. Right. And so you've got a lot of people that have day jobs that are devoting their time to try to make the standards better. And it's a system I think it works pretty well, actually. But it's, it's gotten off track in this, this whole issue of putting everything in the standards and the codes as opposed to, I mean, now that we have the ability to, to do webinars and, you know, these conferences, there's a lot better ways, particularly electronically, like you're doing it with night school, AISC night school. There's mm -hmm. a lot of better ways to get the information into the hands of the practitioners without necessarily just putting it all into a code. Or putting it in a design guide. Design guides. I mean, AISC is a very fantastic service to the steel industry and the steel designers by developing those design guides. And we need more design guides and less cramming the, everything we learn into the specification. And so one of the initiatives that I know that Charlie Carter is working on and Ron Zimian is to what will the next generation of the AISC specification look like as we evolve into this performance-based design approach? That's going to take a lot of soul-searching because right now the path forward is, okay, we do the research in the universities with grants and funding, and we learn all this stuff, and then we bring it to the code committee, and then the code committee says, okay, well, now we got to put that into the specification and the standard, and we just can't keep going that way because the documents are getting thicker and more complex. I think there are better ways to get the information into the hands of people through these resource documents mm -hmm. and include things like webinars and design guides. I mean, that's what engineers want. They want design guides. They want Okay, tell me how to do something. Right. And, uh, and tell me how to do it in great detail, but it doesn't need to be in the specification. That's right, exactly. Make the specification lean and mean. Leave the engineer to use some engineering judgment. After all, when we put our stamp on those drawings, we're all taking the responsibility for the design. So yep. not necessarily helping us by putting it all into the specification or into the code. Right. I'm really looking forward to see how the profession responds to you know the next generation of, of standards because I really think there's going to be a change in direction here pretty soon just because we just can't keep going the way we're going. Right, something's got to give. Something's got to give. <laughs> so in 2002 you received AISC's Lifetime Achievement Award. 
which is special recognition for many years of service to the structural design, construction, and academic communities. What did that mean to you, that Lifetime Achievement Award? Of course, whenever you win an award and you're recognized by your peers, it's, it's, it's very satisfying. But, I, you know, my dad taught me, you know, don't get too big of a head because uh, <laughs> when you're involved in engineering, as I mentioned earlier, it is a team sport. And a lot of the success I've had in my career has come from the opportunity to work on really great projects with a great team behind me. So it is very satisfying to get these awards, but you always got to look over your shoulder behind you as to, you know, how did you really get there? Uh-huh. And it's never you get there all by yourself. Yeah, never by yourself. There's always people that help you get there. You mentioned that you received the T.R. Higgins Award. That was in 1994, which recognizes the best paper on the design of structural steel design. So what was your paper about? Well, that was where I learned about composite frame construction living in Houston during the boom years when we were doing all these tall buildings. And I learned about composite frame construction. And so my paper I published in the ISC Engineering Journal article on composite frame construction. And of course, in that method, as, you're, as you know, you build a steel up ahead and you come behind with reinforced concrete and you use reinforced concrete, what it's good for, and that is taking high compression loads. Mm-hmm. And then you, you use the steel for speed of construction and economy and lightweight floor systems. Composite frame construction is very synergistic in that you're taking two very different materials and making them work together. Mm-hmm. And I was very pleased that AISC recognized my, my contribution to the tall building work where we used a lot of composite frame construction. So that was very satisfying. What do you think are the three most important characteristics that a practicing structural engineer should have? Well, let's see. Boy, I can narrow it down to three, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's tough. Well, I mentioned the discipline. You know, the, the challenge for structural engineers today is faster, better, cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> sort of the, the bywords. And so we're under tremendous pressure to do complex designs on a very tight schedule for a very tight budget, always. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of snakes in the grass and pitfalls along the way that you can find yourself getting into some really bad predicaments if you're you're not careful. That culture of discipline is certainly one. You've got to be disciplined. Because the way design works, and uh, you know this from, from school, is that you know, design is an iterative process. Mm-hmm. It always has been, always will be. The way architecture is practiced today, the, the architect, at the time we placed the steel mill order, you know, the architect still still designing. <laughs> yes. And so <laughs> all throughout the process, you know, you're trying to move forward on a tight schedule and design the project, and things are changing inevitably. The architect's changing the design. The contractor may be changing things, so you're, you're taking two steps forward, but then you're always taking one step back. And where engineers are getting into trouble is that they're taking those two steps forward, but when something changes, they're not going back and say, okay, wait a minute now, how did that affect what I did last month or last week? That's when mistakes start to creep into the system, and yep. mistakes invariably cost somebody time and money. So that's where the discipline comes in, discipline of design and understanding that there are going to be changes and you have to go back and pick up those changes and be sure that your your design is still correct. So that culture of discipline is important. And we talked about the software and the power that engineers have at their desktop, but you know, that's great power, but it, it has to come with the engineering judgment of how with to use it. great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> that's exactly right. No question about it. You know, engineers need to obviously know how to use the software and it's a very powerful tool that it is, particularly when you can do a lot of different types of design comparing costs and material quantities and so on. But 
you always have to have a feel for the structure and where you get into trouble is if you're just using that computer and you're believing everything it's telling you on the mm -hmm. output side and you're not thinking about it and you're not rationalizing how the structure should be behaving compared to what the computer program says it should be doing. Right. So it's that engineering judgment that, that has to be applied to your designs and, and, and that frankly takes experience and it takes discipline for, from every engineer. And then the third thing is I think a willingness to learn. We talked about code complexity and all the information that's coming out now and the ever-changing processes in, in the building codes and the standards and so keeping up with the latest is something you have to do if mm -hmm. you're going to be economical and if you're going to you know, make sure your designs are code compliant. I mean, a lot of engineers don't like to, you know, when you're when you're doing your day job and you're under a lot of pressure to get something out, it's hard to go back and read a paper or, you know, read Modern Steel Construction or the Engineering Journal like you should be to stay up with what's going on. That's part of the discipline as well. So uh, engineers have to keep up with what's going on and be sure that they're still relevant in what they're trying to, to design. What advice do you wish that you had had when you were starting your career? Well, that's a good question. I've been fortunate, as I mentioned, to work with a lot of great people. There's a couple of things I wish I wish I'd have done. First of all, I wish I'd learned how to type. Because <laughs> I know with computers, boy, you know, I'm still a you know a, a, a pecker. Peck. So, and, uh, so you know, I, re I regret now I learned how to type. And when I was in high school, you know, everybody was taking a wood shop, and you know, we didn't take typing. That was kind of like basket weaving. You know, you weren't going to do that. But then I also wish, you know, I'd a better understanding of, of reliability theory because when you really look at structural engineering you're it's all about estimating loads it's about approximations and it's about a lot of statistics and it uh, is mm -hmm. certainly i didn't have the background in that to understand uh, reliability theory for instance you know you hear a lot about reliability theory in, in modern structural engineering and i think many engineers don't have a very good background in that don't really understand the statistical aspect of structural engineering. There's a lot of statistics involved. I think that's something we engineers need to perhaps be a little bit more proficient in that in that side of it. So there's a rumor that you were driving around Houston and found at least two bridges that were not uh, properly designed. <laughs> Is that true and what did you do about it? Yeah, it actually, <laughs> it actually was true. Uh, I was taught by uh, Dr. Joe Ura at UT and Joe has done so many great things for structural steel and, and stability and uh, a longtime member of the specification committee. But I, I was fortunate to take all of his courses. And one of the things, uh, landmarks in his career, of course, was all this bracing design. Bracing was a big mystery to structural engineers for many, many years. And, you know, you take 2% of the forces and that's what you design them for and uh -huh. you're done. Well, Dr. Ura made a science out of that, did an enormous amount of research and came up with all these guidelines for designing bracing and so we use that uh, every day in our designs and as I learned about bracing and I took all of his short courses and of course a lot of it I learned in school from him I, I came to be more cognizant of what good bracing was and, and what bad bracing <laughs> was and so driving down Houston and they were building some of these arches across the Southwest Freeway there series I think three or four of them they're right in a row and I noticed that um, it was two parallel arches and they just had posts going between them and I looked at those and, and then of course the, the roadway over the freeway was hung from these arches. And these arches were very architectural in that they were that they were stainless steel but they were very polished beautiful actually structures won a bunch of design awards but I didn't think that the bracing was right you know as you know arches of course are under compression mm -hmm. and uh, you got 
the uh, hangers that are holding up the street below, these arches have to be braced, and, and all I saw was a couple of very slender posts going across. And so I went home and uh, armed with all of Dr. Ear's knowledge about, you know, what constitutes good bracing, I started running some quick numbers, and I <laughs> said, gee, this isn't, just doesn't work. So our civil engineering group in Houston, of course, works with the highway department, and so I contacted someone and said, look, have you, how'd you guys design this bracing? Because it doesn't, doesn't quite look right to me. And they gave me the name of the engineer, and actually used to, was a Walter P. Moore engineer oh. that left our company, went to work for the bridge group. So I got his name, and I called him, and he said, well, you know, let me check into that, and I'll get back to you. And I didn't hear from anybody for a couple of months, and meanwhile, the construction was going on. And then, and then I, lo and behold, I see there's, there's another crane out there, and they're putting some cross bracing <laughs> in between these arches. And I said, wow. <laughs> So I inquired about that. I said, well, yeah, you raised these questions about the bracing here. So, you know, we thought that we'd better beef up the bracing. So, so they were still building. They were still building. They were still building. Yeah, so they was, were able to fix they it. They were able to go back. And then sure enough, they went back and added cross bracing in there, which, which I think is probably what should have happened the first time. <laughs> and then there was another bridge in Houston uh, next to the Astrodome that, that got built. It was a... Uh, one of these pony truss designs and it was very clear to me that you know a pony truss has got the same features where it's an unbraced top cord it didn't look to me like the posts were going to have enough stiffness to do the job we looked into it and found out yeah there was some problems there and so they ended up going back and during construction and retrofitting that one <laughs> and that wasn't our design either so it was a couple of uh, well-placed telephone calls to uh, the people that were responsible. Anyway, uh, you know, when you're a structural engineer and you're wandering around, you always tend to look up when you're inside of a building, right? Always. Uh, at, the, at the steel, and then you do the same thing with bridges, and so that's just how that happened to work out. Well, it's a good thing you were observant as they were being built, that they were able to, to go back and, and look at these things yeah. before they actually let traffic come across them. See, I owe all that to Dr. Ura and all of his uh, great bracing guidelines that he developed. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had been armed with any of that knowledge. Well, in fact, you just look at it and be like, well, that's not right. <laughs> that's amazing. I think you would have come to the same conclusion <laughs> if I look at it. Okay, we'll just, we'll just assume that. If you weren't an engineer, what other profession do you think you would have liked to have tried? You know, when, uh, of course, you've been around through the cycles like I have, uh, you know, construction is always a peak and valleys, and the valleys are very painful because you, you develop a very proficient staff and have guys that you tend to rely on, and then the downtimes come and you have no choice with no work. you gotta, you got to lay people off. Mm -hmm. That's very painful. Nothing is worse than uh, calling a guy into your office and telling him or her that you know they don't have a job anymore. And so I've had to do that a few times in my career, and that's that's not fun. And one of the times I did it, I said, "Hey, this I got to get out of this. This is no fun at all." <laughs> so I actually thought about going to law school. Really? My brother was an electrical engineer, and then after the Vietnam War, he went off and got a law degree. And you're a good lawyer. You're you're pretty well off and you, you do very well. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of starving lawyers out there too, but if you're a good lawyer, you, you make a pretty good living. And so I said, oh, man, you ought to try that. So with an engineering background, you know, I could, yeah, I could get into patent law or something. But anyway, the market went back up and so I dropped that. And so, uh, <laughs> right there I am, I continued on. So you'd always think about what ifs, but you know, structural engineering has been very satisfying. Particularly, I've been very fortunate to work on really great projects with great teams and that's, that's really been the satisfaction for my career. Well, that's great that you, you didn't have other... I'd like to know what would have happened if I'd done this. Well, you When know, you're so you're, satisfied you're, with what you... 
pretty pretty happy with, with, with the way it worked out, actually. So it's uh, got to meet a lot of great people. You know, there's so many giants in our industry with you mm-hmm. know, Ted Galambos and Dr. Gere, Bob Desquay, Bill McGuire. I mean, these are giants. And we got some really good ones coming up here now. A lot of them on the spec committee with Roberto Leone, Greg Deerline, and uh, Jerry Hajar, and Don White. These are great uh, minds, and uh, they're really. Uh, advancing the art of structural engineering. So I think our our profession is in good hands. <laughs> That's good to know. Yeah. What's your favorite vacation spot? <laughs> and what do you like to do when you go there? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Charlie Carter probably told you about that one, didn't he? Yeah, every summer, actually twice a year, I go off to Lake Tahoe. Mm-hmm. It's right on the border between California and Nevada. And uh, if you've ever been there, it's just a incredible spot to, to be the beautiful blue water and the mountains and the, the tall pine trees and every year I go there and seem to spend a little bit longer every time I go now so uh, <laughs> at that point in my career where I really enjoy it up there and the peace and the solitude and the blue water and lots of things to do like hiking and boating and but I like to go up there and you know work half a day and then play half a day yeah so Lake Tahoe is just fantastic and that's where I recharge my batteries so if we can't find you, we need to look for you in Lake Tahoe. Yeah, that's where I'll be. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds lovely. I haven't had the pleasure yet, but... Oh, you got to go. Hopefully. Sure. It's on the list. Well, I think those are all my questions for you, Larry. This was such a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. And you're up to number 25 now, so that's great. So uh, I guess I need to listen to more of these. I, <laughs> I got to hear Cindy and a few. Bob Desquay, that was a very rewarding one to listen to him. And he was one of my heroes back from the early days, so... Anyway, thank you very much. Uh, Thank AISC for the opportunity. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org slash seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.